I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Live Wire podcast. This is the podcast version of the Live Wire radio show. My name is Luke Burbank. I am your host of uh, both of these things. You know, we want to make this just the absolute best pod cart that it can be. And uh, to that end, we would like to uh, have you, if you would just take a moment of your life, Go over to livewireradio.org slash survey and fill out a little survey about the podcast. Tell us uh, what you like, what you don't like, where you'd like this little uh, digital version of our radio program to go in the future, and uh, how we can make it absolutely the, uh, the very best. And if you, uh, if you do that, if you take the time, uh, you'll be entered to win some Livewire swag, uh, including... Uh, we'll give you an one minute of airtime on the podcast so you can, like, you know, wish somebody a happy birthday or a happy anniversary. Or you can talk about your band or your uh, one-person uh, mime interpretation of a streetcar named Desire. I hope to God none of you are working on that. But, hey, if you win the drawing, you can do that. Although, I, if you're really committed to the mime thing, I don't know if that's going to really work for – audio anyway here's the point if you could go over to livewireradio.org slash survey fill out the survey and um and help us make this the best podcast that it can be um you know what we had an amazing radio show this week that i'm excited for you to hear the theme was uh, hindsight and we had a bunch of guests who kind of tackled the idea of of looking back on experiences and learning and sometimes not learning. And uh, it, was a, it was a really fascinating hour there at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we started off, I talked a little bit about um, the bad idea I had one time to lie about my professional credentials to try to get a better room in a hotel. And then uh, Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher came by talk about their relationship and touring together. They're both amazing comedians, and they are, it, it turns out, married to each other. Uh, so we had a blast talking to them. Just a bunch of fun stuff that you're going to get to hear on this edition of the LiveWire podcast, which gets rolling right now. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with author and filmmaker Sebastian Younger, comedians Natasha Leggero, Moshe Kasher, and Claire Mullaney, with music from Lelouz and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, if hindsight is 2020, he should have perfect vision by now, Luke Burbank. Wow, thank you, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody here at Mississippi Studios. 
We have a jam-packed show for you. Our theme this episode is hindsight, which they always say is 2020, right? Which is, I think, mostly true, right? It's a lot easier when you're looking back on something to figure out if you, if you did the right thing or not. I, I, though, have this ability to get myself into jams and pickles that should not even need the benefit of hindsight. Like, I really should be able to tell in the moment that this is not gonna end well. <laughs> but I lack that synapse in my brain for some reason. I like to push things too much, and my wife gives me a lot of crap because I'm sort of like a serial upgrader of my life. Like, I always have to get, whatever the thing is we're doing, I wanna be doing the most of it. I wanna be at the best part of it. Like, if we go to get dinner, and there are a couple of tables available, and one is like kind of primo, it's like by the window, and one is not as good. If we get put at the not good table, I will spend the whole meal staring at the good table, <laughs> weeping softly, because I'm not, at, I'm not living my best Luke upgrade life. And it, this desire, it's like almost a compulsion, it makes me do really dumb things, like I was living in New York some number of years ago, and I was coming back to Seattle to visit my daughter, who was living in Seattle, and so I made a hotel reservation, and I was online. It was a kind of a nice-ish hotel. So when, when I was doing the, uh, the reservation, they had an option, like a drop-down menu, that said, how may we address you? <laughs> so Mr. Burbank was an option. Uh, Mr. Burbank Jr. was an option. Mr. Burbank II. Mr. Burbank III. And down at the bottom was Dr. Burbank. <laughs> which I selected. Because this is the way that my upgrade brain works. I thought, they're gonna definitely give me a good room if they think I'm a doctor. That was actually the logic behind me, put it, lying to them about my educational background. So I do this, I select Dr. Burbank, I completely forget about it for like two months until the moment I'm standing at the front desk of the hotel. My daughter is there with me. And the front desk guy says, welcome to the hotel, Dr. Burbank. <laughs> and my daughter looks at me, she's like 13, looks at me like, what the F? <laughs> and I looked at her with a look that she had come to really know by this time in her life, a look that said, go with it. <laughs> so she did. And the front desk guy, I actually don't know why he asked this because it's a little forward, but the front desk guy said, what sort of doctor are you, Dr. Burbank? <laughs> and this would have been a perfect time for me to say, oh, I'm not a doctor, I clicked on the wrong button on the intake page, but I didn't say that. I looked him straight in the eye and just acting on, on instinct, I said, brain doctor? <laughs> Which he did not seem to be buying. <laughs> we got back to the room and my daughter was like, what was that about? because she knows I'm not a doctor. She knew me when I was in college. She was like five. <laughs> she knows that I barely graduated from a state school with a degree in mass communications, <laughs> which is one click above getting a poli-sci degree from Donald Trump University. <laughs> it is barely a diploma. I told her, I was like, I'm trying to get us an upgrade. And there's a moment in every kid's life where you realize that the roles have changed and you're now the adult in the situation. <laughs> and I think this was that day for my daughter. <laughs> because she said, dude, what you did not think about with this is that now they think you're a doctor and if there's any medical emergency in this hotel for this entire weekend, they are going to call you. I had not thought about those implications. <laughs> So this is a good time probably in most people's lives to call down to the front desk and say, hey, there's been a weird misunderstanding. I'm not a board certified brain doctor. I'm a public radio host with a dream. And uh, please don't call me if there's any kind of medical problems. I chose not to do that. I chose instead to look up on my phone how to do CPR. <laughs> because that is how committed to this lie I now was. I was perfectly ready to gravely endanger someone's life 
with internet-based CPR <laughs> to keep my hustle going with this hotel. So the whole weekend was kind of a nightmare for me. Anytime we were in the hotel, in the hotel room, I was just super stressed. Like, they are gonna call, there's gonna be a situation, this whole charade is gonna, is gonna get exposed. And amazingly, it didn't happen. I got to the Sunday, I was checking out, and as I was checking out, I was so relieved. I was like, I have so learned my lesson. This was really a bad idea. I am never doing this again. As I was signing the credit card thing, the guy checking me out was the same guy who had checked us in. And as I was leaving, he, he sort of stopped me and he said, Dr. Burbank, it's been a real honor having you stay in the hotel. <laughs> and I was filled with so much pride. <laughs> the kind of pride I think only a fake brain doctor can really know. I don't, so in hindsight, it might have been the right call. I'm not, I'm actually not sure. I mean, it, let's get our first two guests out here who I have been a huge fan of, both of them, for a long, long time. I love Natasha Leggero's deadpan wit, her ability to portray deeply self-involved, awful people with troubling accuracy. Meanwhile, I also really dig Moshe Kasher's stand-up comedy chops, his supremely unique take on life. So imagine my surprise when I found out that these two people I love, love each other. That's right, they were recently married. They're currently out on the road sharing that love with audiences as part of their honeymoon tour. Please welcome Natasha Leggero and Moshe Kasher to Livewire. <laughs> Moshe and Natasha, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for coming. You guys also have a, a sold-out show in Portland in an hour or two from now. It's a in like 45 minutes. And you guys were, <laughs> you were nice enough to come over here. Uh, you're on this thing you're calling the Honeymoon Tour. Uh, I've been... It's not a thing, it's our tour. Oh, sorry. Ooh. <laughs> Looks like she's not portraying awful people. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, sorry, sorry. Well, let's just jump right in then, Natasha. No, 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 how, no, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say been, that. I didn't mean to say that. How, <laughs> how do you have such an amazingly <laughs> natural ability to play people, like on, on your show, Another Period, people who are just wastes of skin? <laughs> where does that come from? Um, I, I don't know. I guess it's, it's where my heart is. We should mention that Another Period is a show that takes place in Newport, Rhode Island at the turn of the century. It's basically if the Kardashians lived at Downton Abbey, essentially. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I always thought, like, you know, evil, heartless people are more interesting to watch. Now, is that something that you figured out early on in your comedy career? Like, what were the various... I don't know, comedy stylings and personas that you tried out before you settled on, on this one. I mean, if you really want to know the truth, it's that when I was, I was a child actor and I was in this play, the first play I was ever in was uh, Great Expectations and I played young Estella and she's a heartless and I was the child version. And then I always wanted to be, I always wanted to go back to, to the theater because I was in that play and I was like, I want to keep doing that, I want to keep doing that. So I thought like I had to keep being that person. And that, I mean, and then I just kept being that way. And one day, Moshe, you saw her across the room and you said, yes. I want that. I was like, you may kiss me if you like. And then, you know. Is that a line from the play? Yeah, I don't know who would get that. NPR listeners, maybe. Yeah, you're in the right place for obscure theatrical <laughs> references. For obscure Dickensian yes. <laughs> references. Hey, Moshe, your book, Cashier in the Rye, yes. is incredible. Thank you. Um, it, uh, it is a memoir, but it's such great literature as well. Like Moshe's a great writer. He really is, because it's such a personal view into his life and all the stuff you went through. Your parents are both deaf. You grew up the only white kid in a lot of the situations you were in. I just wondered, Natasha, like, did that kind of shape your impression of this guy who then you ended up getting married to? Like, you got like a weird preview of who this dude is. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, it's nice to read someone's memoirs before you get involved. <laughs> it's <laughs> instructive. Oh, so the moral of the story is... <laughs> Find someone who's written a memoir, read it, and then marry them. No, I, I can tell he was I a nice a, person, and you know. Yeah. But you know, I, it's, it is interesting, not Natasha, because we ended up getting married, but it is interesting when you write a memoir, like everybody you meet who's read the book knows so much information about you. They know so deeply into your core, and you know nothing about them, but you're, they're not wrong when they say, like, I know you. They do know you, and you're just like, 
I, I, I hope that you like me. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Are you guys at this point, because you've been touring on your honeymoon tour, which is very much a thing, um, <laughs> have you guys uh, gotten tired of talking about your relationship? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, we're very happy. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're happy we found each other. I mean, it's not often that two people at this level, this frequency of talent, find each other. And <laughs> so uh, we get to just like look in each other. We're both in Hollywood, so we get to kind of look in each other's eyes, but also over each other's shoulders into the mirrors that we've set up <laughs> so we can still look at ourselves. I mean, I think like, uh, I, I, I kind of don't, I, I understand the idea of a person feeling like I need space from my partner. I need to, but I also don't understand if you work a 40-hour week and your partner works a 40-hour week and then all you guys ever see is each other, you come home, you say, hello, how was your day, good night? That seems like a strange way to build a life together. And uh, as we build a family and build a future together, we also get to build a, our, a career together, which I think is kind of a, a beautiful thing. And he is a supportive man. He really is. Do you guys collaborate now on uh, joke writing? What's it like at your guys' house? Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, our dogs think we are funny. <laughs> <laughs> Finally got the NPR listeners with a little dog humor. <laughs> I, I too have 90 dogs. Is that a, MP a public radio thing to have a lot of dogs? I feel like the, the Venn diagrams of like coffee, the New Yorker, and dogs are like a solid black bullseye <laughs> in the NPR, right? I feel yeah. like. Man, that New Yorker is dense, though. I don't mean to sound stupid, but I've, I, got a, I got a subscription to that for about seven years until I finally was like, I am never going to open this. Well, no, but the secret to the New Yorker is that nobody opens it. They just put it prominently on their coffee table <laughs> to intimidate their friends. Let's take a quick pause, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk more with Moshe Kasher and Natasha Legero. They're out on their honeymoon tour. Uh, which may be coming to a town near you. Check out their website. Uh, we'll be back with more Livewire from PRI in just a moment. Hello there, Livewire podcast listeners. It's Luke. I want to tell you that Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, makers of amazing sit-stand desks like the Jarvis. That's what I use when I am on stage hosting Livewire Radio. You've probably, you know, you're listening to this podcast. You've you've listened to the um, the radio version of the show, I'm going to assume, and you're just thinking to yourself, how does he do it? Like, how is it possible for somebody to just be so on point with their hosting? And I think a lot of it comes down to the desk. The fact that I can adjust it to any height I need, the fact that it remembers the different heights, depending on the kind of guest. Like, if it's a really serious guest, maybe I need the desk at a certain height. But if it's a laugh riot, like Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher, maybe that's there's a different setting for that. I don't have to worry about any of it. The Jarvis desk I use takes care of all of that. And if you are considering buying an adjustable height desk, but maybe you got a few questions, you should go over to Ergo Depot's website, which has all the information you need. It's ergodepot.com. You can check out their wide selection of desks that will meet any need you might possibly have. Or give them a call. Their phone number is right there at the website. Again, if you're like uh, old school, if you're IRL, if you'd like to just get on the horn, get on the blower, and talk to somebody about your ergonomic desk needs. They would be very happy to help you out in that way as well. This may sound too good to be true, people, but it's not. It's just Ergo Depot. Again, go to ergodepot.com to find out more. All right, coming up next on the Livewire podcast slash radio show, Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher talk about their traditions that they invoked and some that I guess they sort of invented for their traditional but somewhat non-traditional Jewish wedding. Also, we uh, hear from La Luz, awesome surf noir band from Seattle, and Sebastian Younger talks about his new book, Tribe, which just absolutely blew my mind. I just thought it was fascinating, interesting stuff, and we're going to hear about it coming up in a minute. Stay tuned. It's the Livewire podcast. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. We have Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher here. Uh, hilarious comedians in their own right who recently united to form a comedy family uh, that they are now out <laughs> on tour together with their honeymoon tour. Your tour poster is a, a quite a shocking picture, really. It's the two of you standing on a balcony, and Moshe, you're holding up a giant sheet oh, that has that. She's a Virgin written on it. That's from our wedding. Yeah, it was our wedding night. <laughs> well, because I converted to Judaism, 
And then, because uh, why not? And Did you really convert to Judaism, Natasha? Yes. Uh, Judaism's, I mean, I just didn't, I don't want to be Catholic anymore. That's <laughs> embarrassing. I mean, Judaism's an amazing religion. I'm a huge fan. I love w it. What I like about Judaism is that it's the truth. And let me tell you more <laughs> about that. Oh, wait, but to answer his question about the sheet, so since I was converting to Judaism, I was in these, like, rudimentary classes, and I took, like, 19 four-hour classes from Rabbi Neil Weinberg. And from the Judaism by Choice <laughs> program in Los Angeles. <laughs> and so I took 19 classes in, like, six weeks or four weeks or something. I don't know. And so it was, like, very, I was getting all this information, but I thought it would be cool to have my Jewish wedding have all the steps that he talked about since, like, the feudal times. So and I so, yeah, <laughs> we did the traditional thing where you write. First of all, we do the, what was it called before? Uh, where you put a napkin on your head? <laughs> it's called a... Bedeckin. A, a, a Bedeckin, yeah. Bedeckin. It's, called, okay. it's a beautiful ceremony where basically the, the bride is veiled and the... It's kind of a weirdly... Uh, it's cool, If you can believe though. it, it's kind of patriarchal. Uh, it's to make sure, well, basically, it's to make sure that... Um, that you're getting the right woman. That you're you know. getting the right bride. Yeah, you got to peek <laughs> under the napkin and be like, oh, it's her. We got a good deal, or whatever. <laughs> so then all the friends come with the music, and hit all, all the men, the women get ready in one area, the men get ready in the other area, and then they all play music and meet together, and then he pulls up. I just put a napkin on my head, and he saw that it was me, and then... It was, it's not called a napkin. Okay. Yeah. Just to clarify, in the, in the religion, they don't say that she puts a napkin on her head, you pull the napkin up, you're good. That's but not it needs in the to Torah. be a veil. No. <laughs> okay, well, it's a heavy veil, which I did not wear. Uh, right. It, well, yeah, she did actually wear a napkin. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then, oh, but just let me finish. So then we did that part. <laughs> and then we did, uh, you know, you just stomp on the glass. And then in, in Jewish culture, you go uh, have sex for the first time. So then while our friends were eating the tacos, we went and banged. For the radio audience, they just low-fived Moshe and <laughs> Natasha. Well, the truth is nobody does that anymore. Like, that's from, like, the old, the shtetl, like, the fiddler on the roof times. Right. And we decided we're, we're hipsters. We like things that are old school. <laughs> we like vintage stuff. And then after we did what we did, we, uh, we, we, I said to Natasha, no bits, no, no comedy at the wedding, because that's the worst, you know, and it's like, especially two comedians, like, we're going to dance, we're going to do jokes, like, nobody wants that, but we'll do one bit, and so we, we had written She's a Virgin in a sheet. By the way, you know, the, the idea that Jews make love through a sheet is completely, that's just false, totally. It's a napkin. It's, <laughs> that's a... <laughs> okay, you guys are laughing and clapping, but that felt vaguely anti-Semitic <laughs> about the about the size that, anyway, the point is, <laughs> for me, it would be a sheet if it were true. <laughs> no, but you know the Jews, they put the, the, Jew, the religious Jews have the, the prayer shawl, and they, they put it over their head, it's got a hole in the middle, and the, the tassels, you know what I'm talking about, they're called yes. tzitzit. And so basically, in the old times, people would, uh, the Jews would put, hang it on their uh, laundry line, and there would be a big old sheet with a hole in it, and the Gentiles, you know, Gentiles can't, they can't get their brains out of the bedroom, they would see that and go, oh, they must be having sex through that thing. There's no other explanation possible. That must be a sex sheet. And so it became this idea about Jews having sex through a sheet that is so pervasive, most Jews believe it about themselves. It's just not the truth, but... In our, our wedding, we decided, hey, why not? <laughs> One last question, really quickly. Natasha, did your friends, your, your friends who are not Jewish, were they kind of uh, a little stunned that A, you converted, and B, that your wedding was so traditionally Jewish? I mean, people, the kind of people I hang out with wouldn't really care what religion I was, I don't think. And then my family, I was just like, you know? <laughs> no, that's not true. They got involved, and we actually did a pretty nice ceremony where she's Italian, so uh, one of the blessings, there's seven blessings you read in a Jewish wedding ceremony, and one of them we did in Italian, and her dad read in Italian this Jewish blessing. I mean, we're not a religious family, but I think one of the beautiful things about tradition is that it fills in all the gaps where schmaltz goes. I'm, that's very Jewish. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, like, I feel like a lot of weddings are about, like, gazing into your lover's eyes and, t and reading the bad poem that you wrote. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like the religion will take care of a lot of that, <laughs> you know? Right. So you just go like, uh, yaddle, daddle, 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 smash, and you're married. <laughs> and everybody's like, wow, how did you think of those things? Like, we didn't. These old guys in the desert did. 
Can I just call dibs on my uh, Jewish wedding band called Yidle Dittle Dittle Smash? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that could really work out. Uh, Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher, they're on the Honeymoon Tour June 17th in Austin, Texas. Go check them out. Thank yeah. you so much, you Thank guys. You. Yeah. Tucson and Albuquerque, we're coming away as well. Thank you. Minneapolis, St. Paul are known as the Twin Cities. Now Alaska Airlines is offering twice daily flights to and from Seattle. Coincidence? You decide. Alaska is also offering a daily flight to and from Portland. Learn more at alaskaair.com. All right, let's get our musical guests out here this week. They're a surf rock band that Wikipedia says is also known for their energetic live shows, which often include Soul Train-inspired dance contests and crowd surfing which if that actually happens, and God we pray it does, would be a real first here on Public Radio. Please welcome one of my personal favorite bands from Seattle, La Luz to Livewire. Right here on LiveWire, nice job. We are talking about hindsight this week, the idea of looking to the past for information, which is exactly what Sebastian Younger does in his fascinating new book, Tribe. He looks back at previous cultures and ways of life where people had fewer things, but also seemed to have fewer problems. In the book, he also posed the question, 
When U.S. service members have a hard time blending back into society after war, is it us or them? And what can our past tell us about all of that? Please welcome Sebastian Younger to LiveWire. Sebastian, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's really nice to be here. I, I got this book in the mail, and I had read a lot of your previous work, um, The Perfect Storm and War and seen Restrepo, an incredible documentary that you worked on. Um, and I was expecting a book about PTSD, and when I started reading Tribe, it's really a book about modern life and how modern life is not really delivering on its promise to all of us. Yeah, I mean, when I was a young man, I had a... So uncle figure, mentor figure named Ellis, I was very close to. And he was half Lakota, uh, half Apache, incredibly well read. And he said to me, you know, it's funny, during the days of the frontier, throughout our history, American history, white people were always running off to join the Indians, and they were going native. But we don't have a term for going civilized because no one wants to do it. And I thought about that my whole life. And wondered if it was true, and then I spent a lot of time with American soldiers in Afghanistan in a very rough place, at, uh, an outpost called Restrepo. And uh, there was a lot of combat, it was a very hard place. And uh, at the end of a tough year, a lot of the guys, uh, they actually didn't want to come back. Like, and it reminded me of what my friend Ellis said, like, why is it no one wants to come back to, to society? And, and uh, what is it about sort of tribal life, which is exactly what life in a platoon is, that's so incredibly appealing. And so my book, Tribe, is about exactly that. Like, why is it, why are we drawn to community, and particularly what happens when we lose it, and we have lost it. In this, in modern, not just America, in modern society, we have lost that tribal connection, that communal connection. Well, let's talk a little bit about those uh, Native American tribes. What were they doing uh, to support each other, to give a feeling within the tribe that you were taking care of, that there were people there for you? Like, what was different about how they were living than, let's say, how we're living in 2016? Well, I mean, humans evolved to live in groups of 30, 40, 50, 100, 150 people. Um, and everyone had to be functional. I mean, everyone had to contribute to, the, to sustaining the community. And... Um, we evolved as hunter-gatherers. There was no way to accumulate wealth. It was very egalitarian. I mean, it sounds sort of utopian, but really it's just a function uh, a function of the, the way they were forced to live, that you couldn't accumulate wealth. Everything, it was very egalitarian. Um, if you didn't like how things were being run, you could leave. I mean, literally, you could just change encampments, move in with your wife's cousin or whatever. And so authority was acquired by permission of people, right? It wasn't imposed on people. So that, that more or less is what humans are adapted for. You, you lived your life with people that you recognized and were emotionally connected to. As societies get wealthier, um, it allows people to live more and more individualistic lives, which is great. Um, you can decide to move to California and away from the town you grew up in. You can, um, you can live in an apartment by yourself. That's unheard of in human history for a person to live alone, right? I mean, in, in the context of human history, it's insane. I mean, wealth allows us to live more and more individually. And then we spend a lot of energy actually trying to figure out in our individual lives how to act more communally because we've lost that. And, and as well, you know, I found these amazing statistics. Like as wealth goes up in a society, the suicide rate goes up. The, depre the, the depression rate goes up. And then I had this idea, like, what happens if you collapse modern society? I mean, I already found out from studies and talking to anthropologists that in collective societies, there's very low levels of, of uh, mental illness. But what happens if you collapse modern society, like during the Blitz in London? What, what happens? Uh, the Blitz in London was a particularly intense example of this. I mean, in New I live in New York City, and we lost 3,000 people, and it completely traumatized my city. Uh, London, over the course of six months, lost 30,000 people. And the authorities were worried about uh, not just ma you know mass ca mass casualties, but mass psychiatric casualties, and uh, people just freaking out. Right? These are civilians getting bombed more more intensely than than most soldiers are ever bombed. And what happened was the the ad admissions to psychiatric wards went down during the bombings, and then back up. And um, 
they had social scientists measuring all this stuff. Church attendance did not go up. Superstition went up. People got superstitious about what color, you know, don't wear green for some reason because you'll get killed. And women thought about killing themselves more but didn't. And men didn't even think about killing themselves more. They just smoked more. Uh, <laughs> but ba you know, basically what happens is people act more communally when their society collapses because they need each other. And when you act more communally, basically you forget about your troubles. And so mental, mental health improved during the Blitz. You wrote too that uh, in, in New Orleans after Katrina, there was a lot of misreporting about just widespread violence and looting and all this. But in fact, a lot of people actually worked together and in fact the mental health as you talked about was, was surprisingly okay. Yeah, um, um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, violent crime went down in New Orleans after, after the hurricane hit. Um, there was some looting, but almost exclusively it was people looking for food. Um, in New York after 9-11, the suicide rate went down. Uh, the violent crime, the murder rate went down in New York. Even Vietnam vets with PTSD said that their symptoms improved after 9-11. And again, people want to be needed. And the, the thing about modern society is that we're wealthy enough that we don't actually need everybody which in some ways frees people up to do whatever they want, but it leads to this sort of feeling of disconnect. And um, I was very touched by this. There was a woman in London during the Blitz who said, you know, we would have all gone down to the beaches with broken bottles to fight the Germans if we'd had to. And this was a civilian. This is a woman during the Blitz and a civilian. And that, that's a society which has come together. And when that happens, people actually do better. We're talking to Sebastian Younger. His new book is Tribe. He's also the guy who wrote The Perfect Storm and War and was behind the documentary Restrepo. You have been in your time as a journalist in some pretty, pretty tough situations. You've seen some pretty gruesome things. When did you realize that you yourself were actually uh, dealing with PTSD? Uh, you know, I started covering war um, in the early 90s in Sarajevo during the Bosnian Civil War. And you know, probably the most intense experience I had uh, was about a year before 9-11, I was in northern Afghanistan with Ahmad Shah Massoud, the head of the Northern Alliance. And, you know, back then, the he was fighting the Taliban, and back then the Taliban had fighter planes, they had MiGs, they had tanks, they had all, you know, all the sort of all the toys. And so we really got hammered a few times, and there wasn't much we could do about it. And I came back to New York um, pretty rattled but I had never heard the term PTSD. I mean, this is a year before 9-11. The country's not at war, right? And I, I'm a young guy. I'm like, nothing affects me, right? I mean, I, I mean I, this is what I'm telling myself. Like, I'm, I'm good. And I, okay, I sort of kept jumping at, you know, certain, uh, descending with, you know, when rockets, we were uh, shelled very heavily by Katusha rockets. There was nothing we could do. I and mean, we had to wait until they just ran out of rockets. And, and they come in with this horrible descending whistle, like, like that. So any descending whistle, a shriek like that, still like puts me you know puts me half on the ground i got back to new york and i noticed i was a little jumpy around certain sounds or whatever but that made sense to me but i didn't feel like it was me being affected by it it was just a reaction and uh, and then i went down into the subway and um which is something i do every day and i went down to the subway and and it was crowd it was rush hour and i had this massive panic attack and I'd never had a panic attack. And everything I was looking at was going to kill me. It was the strain. But, I mean, it felt like it was going to kill me. The trains were going too fast. They were too loud. They were going to jump the rails and kill me. The crowds were going to turn on me and beat me to death. The lights were too bright. They were going to somehow, you know, bright me to death. I don't know. I mean, every, everything, everything was a threat. And even though I know, knew it wasn't true. And, but I was absolutely terrified. And I backed up against this column and then finally ran out of there. And after that, for quite a while, any time I was in a small space with too many people, like this, actually, <laughs> as well as small space with too many people where I'm yeah, not Sebastian, in control. Yeah, uh, Sebastian, I should have told you, this is actually immersion therapy for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, a, is this an intervention? Yes. Is it? <laughs> so, so how did you move past this? What, what did you, was it therapy? Uh, you know, Almost 100% of people react in a predictable way when they're traumatized. They have short-term PTSD. Uh, Long-term PTSD, where you get sort of stuck in this trauma rut, is, is, is a lot more rare, and it, it affects around 20% of people. But, but for about 80% of people, eventually, it's, it's, you know, it's like, for some people, depression ha works this way. I mean, you eventually sort of transition out of it, and after a few months, I just stopped panicking. 
I mean, I stopped thinking about it. I said, no, I didn't get it treated. I just, in the much later, years later, I was talking to a woman who was a psychotherapist who was a friend of mine, and she asked if I was, had been affected by combat at all. And I said, I said, no, 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 not really, you know. And I said, and for some reason, I was like, you know, but it was weird, you know, like <laughs> for, for a few years, I kept having panic attacks in small spaces. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, this is 2003, it was right as we were invading Iraq, and she said, that's called PTSD, and I suspect you'll be hearing a lot more about that in the future. Wow. We're talking to Sebastian Younger. His new book is Tribe. In the book, I'm paraphrasing here, but, but you sort of put forward the idea that these U.S. service uh, members who come back from war, um, who have a hard time reintegrating into society, it may not be as much about them being sort of broken people as it is about us having a broken society. Yeah, I mean, I, I was an anthropologist in college, and I did my field work on the Navajo Reservation. And so when I'm sort of contemplating this PTSD conundrum, I thought back to those days. I mean, the Navajo were very warlike, all in the Comanche, the Apache. I mean, they were very warlike societies. And I just thought to myself, I bet, I bet traditional tribal warriors don't get PTSD. And, I, and so I had this idea, like, if maybe if you come back to a cohesive tribal society, you recover from trauma quite quickly. And if you come back to a fractured, alienated society of the sort that we have that already has very high rates of suicide and depression and everything else, um, that you don't, that, you, so that a lot of people get stuck in a long-term trauma reaction. So I started researching that. And, and so the, I found some really interesting numbers. I mean, it's PTSD. It has to do with trauma, right? Only around 10% of the U.S. military is actually engaged in combat. The other 90% uh, really isn't. And, um, and most of those people are actually are not traumatized. They serve their country honorably and they do a tough job, but they're not actually getting shot at or seeing people get killed. And, and, and something like half of them, almost half the military has applied for PTSD disability. So what's going on, right? And the thought that I had, and I pretty much confirmed it, that the, the issue actually isn't trauma for, uh, quite a number of people is not trauma, they weren't traumatized, but they come home and they're really depressed, they're alienated, they feel like they don't fit in. They're actually having a transition disorder. Um, and it's very similar to what go Peace Corps volunteers go through. I mean, pe people in the Peace Corps are in, developing, in the de developing world. They're in a small village in Cameroon or whatever. They're experiencing a very close platoon-like tribal cohesive life. And it's lovely. For two years, it's lovely. It reproduces our evolutionary past extremely well, just like a platoon does. And then they come back and they're dropped into the great American suburb. And many Peace, Peace Corps volunteers go into a really significant depression. It's hard to move to Cameroon. It's way harder to move back here. So my book is sort of focuses on, it's sort of turning the telescope around, right? Maybe the experience of soldiers coming home because they're seeing society with fresh eyes, maybe that's a way to actually see Amer modern society more clearly. We're used to it, but they're not. And their reactions to it might tell us what's actually missing in modern society in sort of human emotional terms. I mean, can anything really be done about this, though? I mean, you cannot stop progress. We are going to be a more, uh, you know, digitally connected, living on our own, uh, presumably, I guess, uh, affluent <laughs> or resourced uh, country as time goes on. What can actually be done about this, or is this just the path we're on? I, I mean, I think the car, okay, the car has enabled us in, in, to a great extent to live a very disconnected life. We can work 50 miles from where we live, et cetera. The Amish don't have cars. Like, they do not drive cars. And th their rate of depression is incredibly low. So in sort of real terms, you know, we could, it's not going to happen. But if you really wanted to fix this problem, it might not be worth it. But get, like, get rid of the car. And that would, do, that would actually do a lot of it. Uh, uh, but before you get You know to your Portland public <laughs> radio <laughs> crowd, right. my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, but 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 seriously, I mean, p p one thing that would I think help a lot is to at least eliminate behaviors that um, are that that run counter to a, a kind of a group consciousness, a sort of group, the idea that we're in we're in this together. And but I mean, we live in a country, right? We don't live. I mean, the biggest entity that we're connected to is the United States, and I think one of the things that undermines our sense of community, even at the smallest level is the sense that the largest entity is actually sort of in danger of cracking and breaking up. I mean, imagine fighting for this country and then coming home and realizing that the country's fighting with itself. And I, I do think it has a real, I mean, a significant psychological impact. And this is me just theorizing. 
just based on all the work that I did, but um, that sense that the center will not hold, I think must be extremely disconcerting to people who are um, already grieving the loss of the small community that they lived in and counted on for a year. So this sounds cliche, but a little bit more, a little more love, a little more comedy between us Americans well, is the well only hope for there, this? There's sp I mean, there's specific things, right? I mean, national, uh, mandatory national service. Um, I, you know, I think a military option, I mean, it should be a military option. Some people will want to join the military. But the idea that young people would, would serve this country in some capacity for a year or two, I think would be psycholo I mean, psychologically incredibly healthy for people. And I think, I mean, just more to like this sort of behavior that undermines us all. I'm 54 in my lifetime, and I'm sure for a lot of you guys, I've never heard contempt and derision used in public debate, public speech among politicians and media and media figures like I like now. I, I, it's it's really new, and it's really interesting because in the platoon, as I, as far as I understood it, I'm not a soldier, but just me taking notes out there. I mean, there were guys. I mean, one friend of mine, one of the soldiers said to me, there are guys in the platoon who hate each other, but we'd all die for each other. And we, the one thing you don't do, if you're, if you're counting on people to save your life, maybe, you don't talk with contempt about them. You don't talk with contempt about people inside the wire. That means you might disagree with the president all day long, but you don't, he's your president, you don't talk with contempt. Uh, I've seen liberals do it about Bush, I've seen conservatives do it about Obama. And, you know, ultimately I think it makes everyone feel like we're actually, there's nothing to be part of. And that's a really, really bad feeling for humans to have. And, and it, it goes away immediately when there's a disaster. You know, 9-11 turned that around in instantly in New York. So, okay, keep your car. You know, no problem, whatever. Keeps us, <laughs> but if you could change that. E I got a lot that, of payments left on that Audi. It, if, if, you could, if you could somehow keep that ethos of like, we're in this together, it would go a really, really long way. Yeah. Well. Sebastian, it's a really incredible book. Uh, I, I read today, it, it's, it's just been certified as a New York Times bestseller, and uh, I think it, it would be a, a great thing for more people to read, so I highly recommend it. Great work on the book and all of your career. Sebastian Younger, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. That's Sebastian Younger. His latest book is Tribe. This week's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, featuring high-quality meats that are free of antibiotics, added growth hormones, and animal byproducts in feed. Because eating a hamburger shouldn't freak you out. More information at wholefoodsmarket.com. You are listening to Livewire. We will be right back. Hello once again, podcast listeners. It's Luke. If you have been listening to this podcast for the last uh, month or so, you've heard me talking about the fact that we are doing a spring membership drive. Our goal was to raise $10,000. $10,000. And we raised, so far, $9,000. So that means we are $1,000 shy of our goal. And we would love, we would just love to get all the way up to 10000 bucks. So you can help us out by going to livewireradio.org, joining our League of Extraordinary Listeners. Uh, we have thank you gifts for you there, uh, which we will happily mail to you, which you can uh, uh, wear around town or carry around town. We've got tote bags, all kinds of cool stuff, T-shirts. Uh, we'll also thank you here on the podcast if you donate uh, 10 bucks a month. And uh, think about that. Think about the stuff you spend 10 bucks a month on. Now, if you've been listening to this Livewire podcast now, uh, and if it's something that kind of brightens your week, uh, maybe consider kicking us an average of, what is the math on this? They say you should never try to do math on the radio, but this is a podcast, so maybe it doesn't matter. So like $2.50 a week. If you think eh, two fifty a week, that's fair, that'd be 10 bucks a month. And that would really, really help us get to this goal. We're trying to get to $10,000. Um, we also want to thank our uh, current members. These are the people who are already donating. And they're the way you are able to hear this episode is because of fine, fine people like this. Um, Eileen Haddon of Anderson Island, Washington. Yay, Eileen Haddon of Anderson Island. It's a very familiar last name for some reason. Kendra Lodwick of Portland, Oregon. Or maybe it's Lodwick. 
Kendra, however you say your last name, we love you, and we appreciate you donating to LiveWire. And then Zachary Simons of Pittsburgh, PA. Zachary is a Yinzer, I'm going to assume. He's a Stullers fan. I know one thing. He's a fan of LiveWire because he's donating and helping uh, support the show. Uh, one other thing, by the way. If you sign up during our uh, pledge drive, our little spring membership drive, I don't know if we're technically calling it a pledge drive, uh, you'll be entered for a chance to win a Jarvis sit-stand desk from our friends at Ergo Depot. Think about this. Think about it as a $10 a month, a $10 lotto ticket to win a very valuable Jarvis desk. Don't think of it as a lotto ticket. Legally, I probably can't say that, but you get the idea. Anyway, uh, thanks to all of you who helped us uh, get as close as we have to our uh, goal this spring. And thanks to those of you who are going to hear my voice, and you're going to take a minute and go to livewireradio.org, and you're going to help us get up to that $10,000 number. We could not do this show without you. That's really the truth. You're not just listeners to the show. Uh, you're also underwriters of the show. You're participants in the show, and, uh, and, and we rely on you uh, heavily, and uh, you never let us down. So thank you so much. All right, coming up next, we have comic Claire Mullaney with a cautionary tale about mixing pot cake, like as in marijuana cake, with bowling, in case that's something you were planning on doing after listening to this episode of the podcast. You might want to reconsider. Here's why. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. Our next guest was one of the new faces of comedy last year, which feels like a lot of pressure, if you ask me. At the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival, she was also a writer on Saturday Night Live for two seasons. And uh, back in college, she was in her school's best-loved improv group. Not impressed? The school was Yale. <laughs> exactly. What are you doing with your life? Please welcome the funny, the talented, Claire Mullaney to Livewire. Um, I have to ask that question because I have this irrational fear that right before I come on stage, everyone in the audience will get a text message with like really bad news. <laughs> so I'd come out and be like, how you guys doing? And be like, uh, not great, Claire. <laughs> All of our nanas just passed. <laughs> but please, carry on with your little jokes. <laughs> um, but I'm glad you guys are good. Uh, my high school reunion was a month ago. I didn't go. <laughs> But it got me thinking about high school. Um, I went to a Catholic school in Chicago, and we all kind of had the same names. Like, I was one of eight Claire's, <laughs> and there were at least a dozen Graces. Like, every other girl was named Grace. Uh, and the best thing that ever happened was I went to school my senior year, and someone had written Grace as a bit on the cafeteria <laughs> window, in shaving cream, of all things. And everyone knew which Grace it was about. <laughs> There was no question, because there were a lot of graces, but only one was a you-know-what. <laughs> uh, even the teachers knew. Like, I went to my first period class, <laughs> and my teacher was like, who would do that? Who would say that about Grace O'Brien? <laughs> You're like, ah, uh, didn't say O'Brien, but you are correct. <laughs> Is this, um... Is this a drug town? Do you guys like drugs? <laughs> I kind of knew the answer, but I wanted you to cheer. Um, I can't really do drugs. I, I don't look down on them. I just don't need them because I'm such an anxious person that, like, I'm always thinking about death and dying. It's a really cool, fun way to live. Um, so anytime I think I'm going to die and then I don't, it's like the most amazing natural high. Like, every time I've been on an airplane that lands safely, which so far has been every, every airplane, <laughs> it's like pure MDMA. <laughs> Just the euphoria when I'm on the ground and not dead. It's fantastic. Um, I also just don't like how drugs are offered to me. Like, when someone comes up to me at a party and says, hey, want to smoke? It just seems very cocky. Like, they don't even have to say weed. It's very cocky on behalf of weed. <laughs> It'd be like if I went up to you and said, hey, want to eat? And the subtext of that was, and you know I'm talking pasta. <laughs> what the hell else would we eat? Pizza? Are you insane? This isn't a pizza party. <laughs> In that metaphor, by the way, pizza was meth. 
pizza was meth, <laughs> if that wasn't clear. <laughs> um, I will tell you the story of the last time I ever did drugs because it was a total disaster. Um, I was in college and a bunch of friends and I went away for the weekend and one of my friends baked a pot cake, which as you all probably know, is a cake with pot in it. <laughs> and I had smoked pot a little bit, but what I didn't know when I was 19 was that there's a huge difference between smoking pot and eating it. When you smoke it, you know how much you're consuming, because you can see it, and you know when it'll hit you, because the when is now. <laughs> when you eat pot food, you know neither of those things. Eating pot food is like going up to a stranger and saying, hey, at some point today, and I don't want to know when, I want you to attack me. I don't want to know when. Also, this is very important, I don't want you to hurt me, but I want to feel like you might. I want to feel some real danger, even though in reality, I'm quite safe. <laughs> so, we ate the pot cake. We asked the stranger to attack us. <laughs> also, the cake was a funfetti cake, if you're familiar, so it was just, it was so good. We just gobbled it up like monsters, and we went to a uh, bowling alley. <laughs> yeah, so you already know this was a bad idea. <laughs> we did not. Um, the bowling alley was wall-to-wall -wall kids' birthday parties. And for a while, everything was fine. We were having like a medium level of fun because bowling is medium fun. <laughs> and uh, at some point, I got up to bowl. And when I turned around, all of my friends had their hands on their knees and they were staring at the ground. <laughs> and one by one, they said, this is bad. <laughs> Something's wrong. I don't like this. And I thought about it and I said, you're all making excellent points. <laughs> Something's wrong. This is bad. And I don't like this. <laughs> so we all kind of agreed we were doomed. Uh, we sat there in silence for anywhere between five minutes and two hours. <laughs> and one of my friends, who I'll call Kenny, but his real name's Keith, Kenny had eaten two huge pieces of this cake. I would call them bricks. He ate two bricks of Funfetti pot cake. Not because he loved drugs. He had actually never done a drug in his life. But because the poor darling loved cake. So at some point when we're sitting in silence, Kenny looks up and he says, I can't see. So another friend of mine, who was a grade older, and you know when you're in school, that like gives you authority. <laughs> he turns to me and says, Claire, call 911. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> so when you, one of the various reasons I, I shouldn't run for a political office is that this 911 recording exists. 911, <laughs> what's your emergency? <sighs> Hello. I'm at the Rip Van Winkle Bowling Alley in Milford, Connecticut, and my friend can't see. I'm sorry, he can't see? That's right, he's gone blind. Okay, ma'am, can you just give me your name, please? No. Just come. And they did. And they laughed. <laughs> they laughed and laughed, and I've never done a drug since. All right, thanks, guys. I'm Claire Mullaney. That's Claire Mullaney right here on LiveWire. LiveWire is brought to you in part by New Belgium, featuring their new seasonal beer, Heavy Melon Ale, brewed with juicy watermelon and zesty lime peel. It's like drinking 12 ounces of summer vacation. More info at newbelgium.com. All right, that's our show. Let's tell you who helped make this show possible. Big thanks to our guests, Moshe Kasher and Natasha Legero, Claire Mullaney, Sebastian Younger, and La Luz. 
This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Our announcer and writer is Jason Rouse. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Craig Bunn was our backstage coordinator today. House Sound by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix by Sean Flora. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust and the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. All right, that is just about it for us here on the Livewire podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, one more time, please uh, go to livewireradio.org slash survey to fill out our survey. You'll be entered to win some swag. If we pick your name out of the hat, we'll just basically turn an entire minute of this show over to you as well. So you can, as I like to say, enjoy the moderate notoriety of being featured on a public radio podcast. Uh, mostly it'll just help us make a good show for you. We want to hear your voice uh, by going uh, to livewireradio.org slash survey. And because we like to give you a little extra, a little extra bit of lovin' here on the podcast, here is a La Luz song that we could not fit on the radio broadcast. So enjoy this. Have a great week. We'll see you back here around this same time. And uh, stay weird, wiredos. And what's the other thing I'm supposed to say? I should have a script in front of me. Have a nice week.
Laluz. Thanks. Right here on Live Watch. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.